Still writing about suffering, although now he's, he has somewhat not changed his tune, but he's, he's moving from uh, the focus of suffering of Christ, and he's going to talk about that again in this chapter, but he's also going to talk about suffering because of our sin. And so that's one of the focuses this morning. We're going to, uh, if you would, begin reading in verse 1. We will read the entire chapter this morning and focus on verses 1 through 6. Therefore, because of what Peter wrote in chapter 3, remember now no chapter and verse divisions, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speaks, uh, speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are a reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of God and of God rest upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffered as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. Let's go to his throne of grace again in prayer. Father, we beseech you by the mercies of your spirit that you would teach us where we are ignorant, that you would forgive us wherein we are arrogant, and that you would fill us with your spirit in order that we may proclaim the unsearchable riches of the just one who died for the unjust, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Mr. Logan, first slide if you would. So we're now in chapter 4. And over these next, <clears throat> I guess, couple of Sundays, we're going to look at the first six verses here. Ceasing from sin. Uh, suffering, and the theme, the major theme of First Peter is the suffering of God's people anticipating, perhaps, persecution, and some that have endured persecution. And what Peter does, of course, is he focuses on the Lord Jesus, and he talks about it here in verse 1. Christ suffered for us in the flesh, in the sarks, okay, which means he suffered as a human being would suffer. 
So remember that as we move through chapter 4. Well, suffering often depresses us, particularly if it's lengthy. And sometimes suffering causes us to focus on the cause of suffering rather than the cure. And Peter talks about in this very first verse, he talks about us having the same mind as Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to learn in this chapter is how to appropriate that mental ability that Christ had to endure suffering even though he did not deserve it and triumph. That's what he said in verse 22 of chapter 3. There are times when our suffering can become an idol. Paul Tripp wrote this. Idolatry is looking horizontally for a savior. It is hoping that my job, experiences, and successes, my spouse, my children, and my friends, my physical strength, intellect, and appearance, or possessions, pleasure, and wealth will give me satisfaction, freedom, healing, wholeness, and peace of heart. So, important that we remember that suffering is allowed by God for his children to make us like Christ. It is not to become an idol apart from Christ. J.I. Packer would write this, Christians often imagine ourselves to be strong, healthy, and holy. But the way to health is to recognize that we are weak and sick and sinful. The first truth is that we are all invalids in God's hospital. That's what we have here. You've heard it said, I've said it many times. The church is a hospital for sinners. And not only that, but we are invalids in that hospital. In moral and spiritual terms, we are sick and damaged, diseased and deformed, scarred and sore, lame and lopsided to a far, far greater extent than we realize. We need to realize that the spiritual health we testify to is only partial and relative. A matter of being less sinful and less incapacitated than we were before our spiritual, uh, were before rather. Our spiritual life is a fragile convalescence. It is a fragile convalescence easily disrupted and we are prone to damaging delusions about it. We all think that we are not as sinful as we actually are. And the mind of Christ, and we'll see as we move through here this morning, one of the appropriations of the mind of Christ is to recognize sin as Christ recognizes it. Not as our moms and dads or grandmas and granddads or, or brothers or sisters, but as Christ recognizes it. Not as our friends. As the Bible sets sin apart so that we understand the gravity of our sin. That applies for saved sinners as well as unsaved sinners. Because when saved sinners arrive at a point to where we are spiritually healthy, they, we've become self-righteous. Next slide. Years ago, I read a number of books by Dallas Willard, who is now with the Lord. And he... Um, wrote a great book, and I would advise you, if you haven't read it, uh, entitled The Divine Conspiracy. I think it may be in our library, but a great book. And in this book, he said that we should begin worship services like AA meetings, like alcoholic uh, anonymous meetings. And he said, uh, for example, hi, my name is Ernie Carey, and I'm a recovering sinner. 
So think about that as we move through what Peter is writing about when he's talking about ceased from sin and ceasing from sin. Hi, my name is, fill in the blank, put your name there, and I'm a recovering sinner. The point is, we're not to let society provide for us the standard of sin because for the most part, especially over the past 50 or more years, society doesn't even think of sin. So as believers, we cannot let society or an educational system that is devoid of understanding sin portray for us what sin is. Sometimes we think if we're just a little bit better than society, then we're better. But really that doesn't make us very good, does it? Because they don't know how to define sin. So Peter talks here about arming yourselves with the same mind as Christ. And so for the remainder of this message this morning and perhaps into next week or so, <clears throat> we're going to look at Christian armament. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in suffering. And in order to do that, we have to understand three basic terms that are used for sin, and I use the word generically, that are found in Scripture. So the first one is transgression. Sin is Transgression And transgression is defined as to know where the boundaries are and yet we willingly step over them for the purpose of convenience or comfort. Another word for transgression is rebellion. Lucifer transgressed, but in his transgression he rebelled. Adam transgressed, but in his transgression he he rebelled. I transgress, but in my transgression I rebel. In other words, or for example, let's say Robbie and I had to go into town on Friday for some uh, business and we made our way uh, to uh, a parking lot, in fact, several parking lots, looking for a parking space. And it took us a while to find one. Now, there were several parking spaces open. There were handicapped spaces, and some of you are thinking, well, preacher, you are handicapped, so you could park in those, no problem. But we passed by those because we're still able to, uh, to be ambulatory, to move from point A to point B. And we were in a, actually, we were at Liberty, and there were a lot of, young folk, who, which we thought were, would, uh, saying that we were aged, that they would move their cars and let us park there. Did that happen? Yes, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, it never happens. No, because old people are invisible. But nonetheless, we found a parking spot, and of course we had to hike, and that, that's a good thing. But this is the example. If we park in a spot that's, that is explicitly defined as no parking or handicapped or whatever, transgression means that I don't care what the sign says. I don't care what the law says. I just don't care. I'm focused only on myself and on a selfish desire. We all fit into this category. We violate what is prohibited. We transgress, we rebel. All sinners transgress. All of us. All sinners are rebels. We rebel against God's moral law. So the first word is 
transgression. Secondly is the word iniquity. Iniquity is moral uncleanness. So when Peter talks about ceasing from sin, he's talking about ceasing from transgression, ceasing from iniquity, and then we'll see the next one in just a moment. Iniquity is moral uncleanness. Corrupting everything we desire, everything we may think about, everything that we may say and do. This infection reaches every aspect of who I am. There is nothing in me that remains unstained. Not a single part of my being is morally pure. I may be moral, but I am not holy. You see, God is morally pure. He is holy. And he desires for his children to be holy. The latter part of chapter 1, 1 Peter, and much of chapter 2 deals with holiness. So iniquity is essentially the lack of holiness. Now, in just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. I've been looking at some messages for beginning for Advent on the first Sunday in, in uh, December. Every infant except Jesus has come into the world with an untreatable condition. The pervasive infection of iniquity. Every one of them. Hard to believe, but many, many years ago, I was a little divine little baby too. Oh, they're so sweet. But I didn't stay that way. And neither did you. Next slide, if you would. The third word, and this is, this is the, the uh, I guess, the generic term for many, many, for transgression, for iniquity, and that's the word sin. If sin is more, if iniquity, rather, is moral uncleanness, then sin is moral weakness. It's the inability. Transgression is willful rebellion. Sin leaves me weak and incapable of consistently obeying God. Gordon was teaching this morning in uh, Colossians, and we looked at a number of other passages in the New Testament about obedience to the faith. Well, sin, because I am morally weak and because I desire to transgress and because my nature has in, is iniquitous, then I'm incapable consistently of being obedient to God. And Paul would write about this in Romans chapter 7, which we covered a number of years ago. Oh, wretched man that I am. And if Paul said that, then I certainly can say that. So we have this terrible trinity here, the word transgression, the word iniquity, and the sin, which captures the doctrine of sin. As There's obviously more to it, but this is just a high-level view of it. And sin is a, the nature that wars and rages inside each of us. How I would desire always to be obedient to the Lord. But Paul said, I don't find that. I find a war inside of me. So the question is, does this terrible trinity drive us to seek the grace that can only be found in the perfect trinity? This terrible trinity only heightens sin's deception. Packer was talking about that. It just heightens how we think about ourselves. So one of the sad results of sin, if you were to stop, if you were to take a mic onto the, the microphone onto the uh, street and you said, walk up to a, an individual and say, well, you, you look like uh, being a human being, you're a sinner, I want to I interview you as a sinner. So one of the sad results of sin is that the sinner carries with them little if any awareness or understanding 
or guilt of sin. And there are myriads of examples of this. There's no, in fact, we live in a, in a, in a culture now that wants to remove any semblance of guilt, except for Christians. And because of this, I say many, I would say the majority of humans think they have the power to fix humans. Without the doctrine of sin, society hopes in education. And you ought to get all the education you can get. Get enough degrees to, have, to make a thermometer. But don't put your faith in the education. Education is a tool. Politics. Now, I could spend years on this. Philosophy. Well, that's what the Christian thinks. Let's, let's talk about what the, uh, what the Muslims think. Oh, let's talk about what, uh, what the uh, skeptics think. Psychology. What are you thinking? Well, I know what you're thinking. All I, I like to do. No, you don't. You've heard me say that hundreds of times. You do not. Medicine. Put our faith in medicine. A few weeks ago, I preached a, a message and, and reminded you that, yeah, there are marvelous results of medicine, but medicine is not miraculous. Only God is miraculous. And many other things. And all of these are beneficial blessings from God. But they have no power whatsoever to rescue us from the uh, darkness, deceit, the destruction, and the death that sin has rained down to us all. They don't have that power. The power is in the gospel of God. So the question I would ask you this morning is this. Do you believe Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4? We studied the book of Ezekiel in our Sunday school class for a number of years. Tremendous study, by the way. And this verse says, Behold, the Lord told Ezekiel, All souls are mine. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. All souls. Yahweh told Ezekiel, are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. The soul that sins shall die. Next slide. If we agree, and we should, if we agree with the prophecy of Ezekiel, then our thinking is in concert with God's. The primary illness of human beings is sin. And the only hope is divine intervention. We live in a sin-scarred world of brokenness, danger, disappointments, difficulties, and injustices. Every human cry. And we've all done this. Like Peter, when he stepped out onto the Sea of Galilee, Lord, save me. Every human cry is a cry for God. Whether you know it or not, it's a cry for God. 
and his redeeming, rescuing, and restoring grace. You see, there are only two groups of people in the world. The way we look at life. We talked about worldviews a few weeks ago. Number one, those who hope in human systems of redemption. And we just listed a few of them on the previous slide. Well, there's hope in these things. Ted Williams, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. <clears throat> he, uh, before he died in his, his will, he, uh, he wanted to be, at, at that time they were experimenting with uh, uh, cryogenic, um, uh, the, the freezing of the body so that it would enter a state and so that he would uh, be kept at a certain temperature close to absolute zero and then over after a period of years after they knew that they could come back and take care of the disease, any diseases he may have, they could thaw him out. And so when he died, he was actually frozen. He was actually placed in this cryogenic chamber. Those who hope in human systems of redemption. And those who know that human hope requires a redeemer. So which are you? Now, it's a good thing. We live in a, in a marvelous time for a lot of these things. And then we live in some very stressful, some very decadent, so when we are when we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ that's what Peter is saying we need to have a clear understanding about sin and sin that humanity will never be delivered from by humanity it only comes through God the Son's intervening grace if sin is the problem, the soul that sins shall die. If it is the problem, then God is the only remedy. Only. Now Peter says, if you look at verse 1, he says, uh, Arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So that's past tense. Peter says, and this, he's speaking of death here. This is death. Notice in verse 2 that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of the lust of the men, but for the will of God. He's speaking of death. When we die, we cease from sin. And that word means to stop, to refrain to restrain, to quit, to desist, to, to desist, uh, uh, come to an end, to cease, to leave, to refrain. It could be translated in any number of ways. And then the word arm, this is an interesting word. So we, we look at the writings of Peter, and, and, and Peter certainly didn't have the, uh, he certainly didn't have the education, the background that Paul had. But when you read the epistles of Peter, Peter's spot on. And he uses the word arm, which means to equip with weapons. The United States has been equipping the Ukraine with weapons. We have been supplying Israel with weapons. We've supplied Taiwan with weapons. We, we are the, the weapons supplier for much of the free world. To equip with weapons and to be busy, here's the other thing to be busy using those weapons, using the armor or the weapons that you have offensively. This is not a defense. This is not putting on a bulletproof vest. This is using a weapon to offensively take what you have been given in the mind of Christ to the world. This continues what Peter wrote back in chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15 when he says, be ready and able to give a defense. Okay? Now he says, be ready and able to give an offense. He carries this through in his writing. 
So if we're going to be equipped for spiritual warfare, we need the armament of the mind of Christ. That's an offensive weapon. The mind and the thinking, the mental and moral purity of Jesus Christ. Now how do we gain this? Next slide. So we gain the mind of Christ by being busy about, by arming ourselves in his word. You are, you and I both are gaining, we are learning about the mind of Christ this morning. Every time the word's taught, you are learning about the mind of Christ. How to think godly. How to think Christianly. How to approach a world that does not think godly and does not think like Christ. So we must be immersed in the Word. We must study Scripture, for Scripture is the conduit for spiritual weaponry. Now why is that? Because the Scriptures reveal Christ. They reveal who we are. But primarily they reveal Christ, and that's what Peter is saying. Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Now, unfortunately, today we live in a time which is, in some cases, the most anti-intellectual in the history of the Christian church. That's not good. We are driven by emotion. We are driven by, by feelings. We're driven by many, many things that are antithetical to Scripture <coughs> because we don't want to be aliens like Peter's talking to, like Peter's writing to. We don't want to be, we want to fit in. When we use the mind to search for, understa for the understanding of God, in some, time, in some cases, it is dismissed today among those that profess the Christian faith. And it's actually despised in others. And feeling is substituted for thinking. And you're not going to be able to think if you're not immersed in the Word. You won't think like Christ without being immersed in the Word. We're not talking about uh, societal morality. We're talking about the morality of God. John Piper, a few years ago, and I read through this, I've used it a number of times from the pulpit, wrote a little book entitled Think. And so I want to read a couple of things here for you this morning. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of Billy Sunday, the evangelist Billy Sunday? He preached back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, he was a great, he was a ball player, by the way. He played ball with Ty Cobb and, and uh, Babe Ruth for a short period of time. But God called him to preach, and he, he did. Evangelist Billy Sunday, who died in 1935, spoke for many Christians when he said, if I had a billion dollars, I'd give $999,999 to the church and a dollar to education. This might not be a bad idea, Piper writes, if the church took respons uh, responsibility for education, but that's not what he meant. This is the voice of thousands who are deeply suspicious of any emphasis on thinking in the pursuit of God. And the America that produced Billy Sunday was an America on its way to the triumph of pragmatism and subjectivism. Not that Sunday was unprincipled, but his, his hostility to the life of the mind diminished the ability of the church to stand against destructive uses of the mind like pragmatism and subjectivism. And these two views, and I'll define them for you, have triumphed for many people in our culture and in our churches. Subjectivism says that thinking is useful 
as a means of justifying our subjective desires. Well, what you're preaching, pre what you're preaching about, Pastor, is just something that, that, uh, that you have passion about. It's an emotional thing. Pragmatism says that thinking is useful as a means of making things work. To be sure, these forces can produce striking achievements in science and business and industry. But missing from both views is a conviction that thinking is a gift of God. Did you realize that? If you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Thinking, God gave you the ability to think as a gift. Thinking is a gift of God whose chief role is to pursue and love and live by ultimate truth. Pragmatism and subjectivism obscure the reality of truth. They engage the mind, but they make it the servant of our desires and our work. but they can't answer which desires I should pursue and which work is worthwhile. Pragmatism. Robert Oppenheimer, I'm reading a book about him now. <coughs> There's a movie just recently released on, about him. He's known as the father of the atomic bomb. Extremely intelligent man, brilliant. Oppenheimer came to know what a good bomb is and obsessively devoted himself to trying to make one. What he did not do at the same time is ask himself whether making this good bomb was a good thing to do. It was pragmatic. And then much ink spills whether or not it was. And that's not for our argument this morning. But what I want you to see is that thinking is a gift that God has given you. And we're to use it in the pursuit of God. Christians are called to think, to seek the insight of the Word of God. Paul himself would write in Philippians chapter 2, he said, let this mind be in you. That's a command, by the way. It's not an option. It's a command. Let this mind be in you that also is in Christ. Peter perhaps had read that epistle from Paul. We don't know. But anyway, he stresses that arm yourselves also with the same mind of Christ. So we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in our suffering. Secondly, we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ in ceasing from present sin. And he says that. He says we are to cease. We have ceased from sin, and we do that because of the will of God. When believers die, they cease from sin. That's one of the good things about death for the believer. I lost my parents, grandparents on both sides, grandparents on both sides that were members here many, many years ago. Friends, acquaintances, family, so forth for years, many of whom were believers. It's been my privilege as a pastor to... to uh, uh, foresee and look over funerals for many, many believers here that have gone home to be with the Lord. They did not stop sinning until they died. The greatest weapon that sin has against us is death. We talked about that as we closed out the service last Sunday morning. And the threat of death when we die is over. Paul would write in Romans 6, he'd say, for he who has died 
has been freed from sin. I'm going to struggle with sin, you are too, until such point as we leave this world in death. While we live, ceasing from sin should be our spiritual goal. Now granted, we cannot in this life. But there's no reason, Peter says, not to arm ourselves, not to put on offensively the mind of Christ so that those that who do know sin, nor was any guile found in chapter 2, verse 22, when he's talking about Jesus Christ. And then the use of Christian armament is stressed in 2 Corinthians 10. So turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Why, does, why are we to think like Christ? Because we are his ambassadors in a world that is no friend of grace, that does not know nor can it define what sin is. For pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's an offensive, using the mind of Christ offensively, pulling down strongholds, Casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Not the feeling of God, the knowledge of God. Most people think about, when they think about God, they think of the man upstairs, or he's my good buddy. And so we forget the nature of sin. Next slide. So, Peter says, you can go back now to 1 Peter 4, but Peter says we're refrain from sin. If you're dead, you've ceased from sin. There's two points to remember here. I'll bring this to a close this morning. Two points. Peter is calling us to remember what sin did to Jesus. My sin. What it did was kill him. It was our sin that killed him. As Peter wrote in chapter 3, the just died for the unjust. As he writes here, suffered for us in the flesh. Remembering this should be the motivation to hate sin. When we sin, and believe me, I suffer through this as much, if not more, than you. It's difficult to remember that Christ was killed because of my sin. I don't like to think of that. I'm thankful for that. But I don't want to think of that. Nevertheless, it's the truth of the word. We should hate sin because it murdered Jesus. And secondly, remember that our sin brings our death. Even though our Savior took on our sin and guilt, even though it killed him, 
sin has and will kill all mortal beings. Everyone, everywhere, at all times. Without regard to age, sex, race, economic means, education, nationality, health or lack thereof, genetics, kindred, kindness, meanness, your height, your weight, your hair color, your eye color, your lack thereof, exercise or no, your political affiliation or no, nor any other thing is going to keep us from dying. Now the return of the Lord may for some, but that's going to be a few. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And he that is dead has ceased from sin. Christ suffered because he could not sin. Yes, there was physical suffering. But he suffered because he could not sin. The sinless Christ was exposed to a world which was lathered in the terrible trinity of rebellion. He suffered not only physically but mentally. In his mind, arm yourself with Christ's mind about sin. So because he chose to become our Savior, he chose to suffer. What a Savior. He chose to become our Savior. He likewise chose to suffer. And if we don't choose suffering, we choose sin. Yes, sometimes the choice is suffering versus sin. And the choice of suffering means that over time the power of sin can be broken. Next slide. How do we do that? We choose the mind of Christ in suffering. It's not an idol. Don't let suffering, your suffering become an idol. Well, so-and-so, they've, they've never been through what I've been through. That's an idol. Because I assure you, Jesus has in multiple times more. We cease from present sin, Peter says there, the latter part of the second verse, which we'll get to later. He says... We sin living for the will of God. We cease from present sin by living for the will of God, in the will of God. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, and then he defines that in verse 3, but for the will of God. So for the sake of righteousness and freedom, arm yourselves with this purpose. It is a command. It's not an option. Now, Scripture teaches us that even though we've been freed from sin personally, or positionally rather, in Christ, and we enjoy a new state of affairs, we made one in Christ. There remains an ongoing struggle from conversion to the time of our glorification in heaven because of sin's presence. We've not been removed from the presence of sin. And we know that because it's within us. In one sense, our D-Day has already taken place. We're privileged to have the D-Day Memorial just outside of Bedford here in Virginia. When the Allies landed in Normandy in June of 1944, it marked the beginning of the end of World War II, but the war wasn't over. 
In fact, it lasted almost a year longer. Yet to come was the Battle of the Bulge, which was, as much as D-Day, one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. My Uncle Harold was part of that. When the forces of the Third Reich made their last struggle, a battle that went on almost 30 days, much longer than D-Day, Our convergence is like D-Day. The outcome of our spiritual future is no longer in doubt. Yet almost daily we struggle with the spiritual battles of the bulge. We're not talking about this. We're talking about that area in Belgium and the Netherlands. And even though 1 Peter 3.22 says that Christ has subdued the powers and principalities. He's dealt an immortal blow. They will seek to give us one last battle. And to win it, to win it, we need the mind of Christ for the will of God. So remember that. We're not sinless in this world. We won't cease from sin until we pass. Go home to be with Jesus and be glorified. Engage the mind of Christ. Be armed with his thinking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this admonition. It's not the only admonition in the New Testament about engaging the mind of Christ. We are told a number of times. And so, Father, correct our errant way of thinking about God. And teach us from the Word how, through the Spirit, we may appropriate these truths. And while many of these things that we have talked about this morning are indeed good things, they are not sufficient to save only Jesus. So remind us of that great truth this morning. There are those here that do not know your Savior. We beseech you by the mercies of the living God, Father, that they give their hearts and souls to you. Receive Jesus today. Be born again as children of God.